Welcome to Apple Podcasts. With me is Nasir Khilji. He retired from the US Treasury as a senior economist last year. He's a mentor, he's a dear friend. And I'm your host, Atul Singh, the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Fair Observer. So Nasir, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Atul. Well, today we are going to discuss uh, the global economy and who better than a man who spent um, a long time in the US Treasury. So without further ado, there is a lot of talk uh, about stagflation. There's a lot of talk of the end of globalization. So question, where do you see the global economy headed? Is it the end of stagflation? Is it the end of globalization? Well, first of all, one has to define what we mean by stagflation and globalization. You know, stagflation is meant to mean that you have simultaneously inflation, high inflation, and high unemployment. The term was coined in the late 1970s, and uh, because at that time, clearly the U.S., especially the U.S., and the world was experiencing high amounts of inflation and at the same time high amounts of unemployment. So in answer to your question, are we back to the late 70s and early 80s, there are some factors and there are some people who believe that we may be heading back to that kind of scenario, especially after the fact uh, that, uh, you know, we had COVID, where that led to a lot of supply chain issues, led to a lot of maximum fiscal stimuluses, Mm-hmm. A lot of monetary easing by all central banks. So all that may have come home to roost, given the supply shock, high supply chain problems, and due to demandful inflation, we've had a record amount of inflation in 30 years that we never experienced. 30 years, we experienced this, but 30 years ago. So is it possible that this can continue? Are we back into that scenario? I would say that the majority of people, especially economists and as such, they think that we are headed for a recession, given the fact that we had very high inflation in 2022, and the federal and central banks, especially in the advanced countries, like the European Central Bank, or the Bank of England, or the Federal Reserve, they all basically stamped on the brakes, increased their policy rates tremendously. The fear is that that which is like a demand softening policy, coupled with supply shocks, like the Ukraine, Russian energy crisis, oil prices, energy prices rising, that may cause inflation. Inflation is calling this, uh, you know, breaks by the central banks. So we may end up in a recession, and at the same time, we may have high amounts of unemployment. And inflation. So High so amounts of inflation and unemployment. So, we may be in a round of stagflation. The question is, so if you end up with a recession and we at the same time have a high amount of inflation, then how long is that going to last? Mm. Personally, looking at the data, looking at how the last three months have transpired, there have been certain happy shocks in a way. Inflation in the USA, for example, has come down tremendously. Starting from like, you know, in the August, year to year in August, it was like over 8 or 9%. In the latest, we are down to like about 4% inflation. 
So although it's below the, the target, it's still high above the, the Federal Reserve's, uh, you know, like target for a maximum amount of inflation. Which but is 2%. Which is 2%. Yeah. So it has come down quite a bit, very, very quick, rapidly. So I do not believe there is a strong possibility that we may end up in a recession induced by central bank policy. Mm -hmm. But, but you don't... Designed to reduce inflation. And that may halt a lot of economies or reduce their growth rate. Mm -hmm. And that may lead to a higher unemployment. But I do not think there is that uh, strong possibility. Uh, but there is a minority opinion that it may not be that bad. Uh -huh. So when we talk of stagflation, the mind goes back to the 1970s. Uh, in the uh, 1960s, the US spent a lot of money. It spent money on the Vietnam War, and it also spent money on Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society programs. And they found that guns and butter put a strain on the fiscal stability of the country. And as a result, in those days, uh, they used to be tied to the gold standard. And they had to go off the gold standard in 1971. In 1973, Richard Nixon formally abandoned the gold standard. So there was both fiscal and monetary easing. And there was the oil shock as well that happened in 1973 as a result of the Yom Kippur War, as you've pointed out many times. So there are really parallels uh, to today. At that time, there was fiscal easing, there was monetary loosening. Today also, there is fiscal easing and monetary loosening. So uh, are we now in for a prolonged period of inflation, maybe not in the US, but elsewhere, such as Europe? Well, that's a good question. But, the, you know, the, uh, although everyone wants to draw parallels to the, you know, the late 60s and the 70s, but those parallels may not be relevant. The reason being that in 1970, like you rightly point out, we were under the Bretton Woods system. So where, you know, like the U.S. dollar was pegged and the U.S. economy as a percentage of the world economy was much higher than where it is right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't much globalization. And what had happened, as you rightly point out, the Great Society programs that were basically domestic demand driven and uh, the Vietnam War, which started increasing trade deficits for the USA, especially because the US was spending overseas mm. on the Vietnam War. And since the US was committed to take the dollars and at $32 an ounce of gold, there was an increasing outflow of gold from Fort Knox. Yeah. So there was no way that the U.S. could sustain all those dollars were coming home to roost. <laughs> so that led Nixon to stop, declare, you know, like uh, buying up the gold. And that's what led the USA off the gold standard. And once you go into a floating system, although there was that belief Economists believe that the, the, the floating exchange rate is like a shock absorber. It would absorb inflationary shocks. But initially, as the dollar went off the gold standard and the dollar depreciated, there was inflation, definitely because of all the, the dollars outside. So that clearly, that was one parallel, you can say, given what has happened recently, where the U.S. spent a lot of amount of money, uh, you know, like fiscal stimulus, over the years 2021 20, and even 22 and that has created a lot of demand and at the same time you've had supply chain issues 
where supplies have been, you know, there's been a lack of supply and that has caused prices to shoot up. So that, again, we tend to focus on the USA, although that same phenomena appears to be happening in major countries like the Eurozone and England and, of course, China and so on. But I do not think that the parallel is valid, exactly valid, because now we do have a lot of emerging economies that may take up the slack. So I'm more optimistic than believing that we'll end up in the 70s in the future. You always make the point that now we have trade. In the 70s, the U.S. was autarkic, and now uh, you have China, which exports a lot to the U.S. Now you have other emerging economies. So the slack could be taken up by others. That's exactly. the argument. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm glad you bring up you know, China because uh, 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 the 2023 is uh, 50 years later is a much different world, as you pointed out, globalization. In the 70s, the USA, in terms of trade, you know, accounted for 10% of US GDP was accounted for by exports and imports of the US trade. And today I was just looking at recent numbers. Now, in fact, if we look at, you know, the recent release numbers, actually imports account for close to about 17 to 19% mm. of, uh, you know, like a GDP, mm-hmm. imports alone. And exports are actually 13%. 13, so well over 30%. So well over 30% of US GDP is accounted for by international trade. So the U.S. is a much more open economy than it used to be in the 70s. So that's one fact. Uh, secondly, China, the rise of China. You know, China now, by many counts, by my estimation, is a larger economy than the USA if we started talking about purchasing prosperity terms. The PPP terms. PPP terms. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, like per capita, they are much lower than the USA. But in PPP terms, they are much higher. And at the, even at the market exchange rate, uh, China constitutes close to 25% of the world economy. So if you take China at 25%, you take USA, like at say 37%, and then you add the Eurozone, mm-hmm. we're already talking about 70% of the world economy. Uh-huh. So, so uh, given that 70 and then you have the rest of the world economy. Mm-hmm. The major is like India. Mm-hmm. India is a growing economy growing much faster than most economies in the world presently. So that may be another big powerhouse in the future. So given this kind of constellation, and given the trade that has been going on between these countries, I think the outlook is going to be determined by how these three major blocks, you know, uh, fare over the next two years. And I I think given the policy uh, constraints, given the breaks by the central bank, and given easing of uh, fiscal stimuli, I think we may be headed back to uh, more normal times. And given that COVID is receding. Well, so more normal times mean the times of globalization inaugurated after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. However, um, there has been a lot of talk in Capitol Hill. There's been a lot of talk in uh, various policymaking circles. and. Numerous um, newspapers and magazines about 
the end of globalization or globalization turning into globalization or frankshoring nearshoring reshoring the us has launched uh, the chips act to try and uh, cut out china from advanced uh, semiconductor technology the us has also launched a green technology act to which the eu is calling foul they say the us now has an industrial policy so it seems that at least at the high technology level there is again a focus on industrialization at home and that might mean that some of the um, winds of growth that helped emerging economies may not be as strong i think that that's a very good you know point and that merits quite a bit of discussion when we talk about globalization clearly if we look at the last 50 years and when as the us economy opened up and you know it started increasing imports first to japan and then china mm-hmm. and then other countries that resulted in what they call the the proverbial west belt yeah that emerged in the usa where there was a lot of labor that was let go from the the old manufacturing and uh, they were unemployed and so on so there was a big reshuffling of the us economy and that has it has suffered quite a bit and i think politically it has uh, led to a lot of repercussions like trump economics and so on and so forth i mean ross perot talked about it as early as 1992 when he talked about the giant sucking south exactly and of course uh, trump uh, brought protectionism back with the vengeance exactly yeah no i i, I agree i think the fundamental point that one doesn't bring up in these discussions nothing you now we have to be very clear about what happened in okay mm-hmm. uh, clearly the us when it was growing it was an autarkic economy it lucked out that the, the world war 2 was going on in european which were all destroyed and japan and so on so it became a major trader and it, its manufacturing capacity was intact fully yeah so they were able to gain from international trade they were never bombed at home and they were never bombed at home yeah. so they basically got on the bandwagon of free trade everywhere because it benefited the us mm-hmm. and as time went on mm-hmm. and as the other economies like japan and the europeans emerged and the germans emerged the us started feeling competition mm. so that you know with like a monopolistic attitude costs were increased they were able to to pass them on to the consumers the the international world but now they had given generous benefits to the labor unions mm. so now they were stuck when they were facing competition from japan and, and you know germans and so on who were bringing in high quality products and they were selling them coupled with the fact that the us dollar previously when gold when we were in the gold standard the dollars had to be redeemed with gold mm. but now there was no redemption going on so it was essentially what happened at the same time that the dollar became a reserve currency rather than gold so they strengthened the that dollar strengthened so the dollar increased so the purchasing power of the dollar that increased the purchasing power yeah. of the dollar that led to on the one hand they had high costs mm. anyway and then compounded by a higher value of the dollar made their goods non competitive with the rest of the world and clearly germans and the europeans other europeans 
and the Japanese gained by that, clearly. So when that happened initially, the USA was still a powerhouse enough to take that and still believed in free trade. But as we come into the 90s and 2000s, as people started you know, feeling that pain. So it was a great deal for the consumers, but it was really hard for the, for the producers. So once the China USA. enters the WTO in and 2001, then, everything changes. And now then the China competition comes is in. too tough. So, along, so if you keep in mind that around Reagan's time, Reagan was a free trader yes. by philosophy. Yeah. So essentially what they came out was a very, like a, a very imaginative deal with the Japanese. But rather than basically putting tariffs or restricting trade with the Japanese, they made the Japanese agree to restrict, you know, voluntary restraint in importing to the USA. It's called the VRA, Voluntary Restraint Agreement. Yes. And the Louvre Accords, and, you know, there was a lot of those accords that went on in the 80s. So, and then, of course, the Chinese got into the act. Mm. Now, we have to bring in the politics. Most economists believe that they are winners and losers in free trade. Mm -hmm. when, when you have free trade with other economies, you excel at what you specialize in. Mm -hmm. And you basically import on things that you do not specialize in, mm -hmm. where the opportunity cost is higher. Yeah. So, so you that export means... Boeings to Bangladesh, but you get T-shirts in return. Exactly. So essentially what that means is that as the industry, the textile industry gets out of the USA, people are let go. So now, generally, the idea in trade, international trade, has always been, even in free trade, free traders, that, they, that the winners should be able to compensate the losers. Mm -hmm. Well, that did not happen, in because. the sense that somehow the policymakers were always, they never really thought about, because, you know, again, depending on which party was in power, they didn't realize that as the, you have losers in trade, they didn't want to extend welfare benefits and social benefits because these were the Republican, the conservative side of the, the U.S. Uh, but even, even the Democrats under Bill Clinton, uh, after the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union, adopted the free trade mantra, lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. Exactly. Well, essentially what happened there was, as you pointed out initially, uh, when you, know, you had the Great Society program, it's like a pendulum, you know. Mm -hmm. So with government largesse and a lot of spending in the 60s and the 70s, the U.S. government became very huge mm. uh, relative to the past. So essentially, uh, the, the welfare benefits had uh, increased tremendously, mm. social welfare. Uh, given that fact, the U.S. had had deficits and had started having debt, especially after the Carter years. And given that fact, uh, that had caused inflation. It had, you know, and then because of that, the, the central banks had to act, and that caused unemployment in the Volcker years. Yeah, Paul Volcker and, Paul and, and, and he so killed inflation by raising interest rates. Raising interest rates and so on. Yeah. So at that point, when, when by the time Bill Clinton came around, there was a new deal. The pendulum was actually had moved when Reagan came in the pendulum had moved all the way to the left in terms of welfare spending and so on, mm -hmm. or government you know, programs. And now the U.S. government or the citizen, less expansive government 
and Reaganomics was a result of that, I which see. led to lower taxes and essentially low taxes. But unfortunately, it didn't lead to lower spending <laughs> because you know the Reagan uh, increased the defense budget. Yes, and, and spent on Star Wars. And in fact, spent, George Bush Sr. called it voodoo economics. Which uh, George Bush, because yeah. ideally it was called supply-side economics, yeah. that given that the tax rates have gone up so high yeah. that uh, basically it was a self-defeating purpose for the government. Whenever they tried to raise taxes, revenues would go down rather than going up. And the only way, you, because of the underground economy, mm -hmm. people stopped, they had no incentive. They'd become a bit like Italians. They had no, exactly, no incentive <laughs> to work or your marginal effort. So in order to, so the Reaganomics, the supply side, you know, coined by Laffer and so on, the Laffer curve, for example, the idea was that if you lower the tax rate, government revenues will increase. Well, Reaganomics was basically, like, think of it as a lab experiment, which failed, you know, miserably. Mm, so the, the taxes were reduced, which resulted in huge amounts of deficits and debt. And then when Bill Clinton arrived on the scene, he had no choice. So essentially, the whole country's mood had changed. The pendulum had sunk to the right uh, because people were getting fed up with the big government. Uh, and they thought that government was the source of all problems. And so when Bill Clinton came along the scene, one of his promises was he was going to cut government, mm. have deregulation in the economy. So he was, in many ways, a right-winger on that point. So he was, in many ways, following Republican policies. And, exactly. And you could or the argue, mood of the country. Exactly, or the mood of the country. And you could argue that Donald Trump was following Democrat policies of protections when he came to power. And Essentially, because, you know, again, notice what happened. This mm. is very, that's very interesting, you know, that how Donald Trump, basically was able to steal the Democrats' constituents. The normal constituents of the Demo Democrats have always argued, you know, when, uh, especially in the 70s, they were always there arguing for protection. And their constituents were the labor unions and blue-collar workers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically the presidents that we had around that time were people like Lyndon Johnson mm -hmm. and John Kennedy and Jimmy Carter who were basically identified more as people from the, the rural areas. They identified more with the blue-collar workers. Mm -hmm. And by the time Bill Clinton came along, and then followed by Obama and so on, the blue-collar people, and especially when they found uh, without a job and getting strained without much benefit from the, federal, from the government, and the new Democrats, supposedly, that came in with Bill Clinton, that they got very disaffected and, you know, disaffected with the whole Democratic Party. They thought it was very elitist. So they, Trump found really good avenues, a good constituency that he was able to steal from the Democrats. The point that Trump was making was that although he believed in free trade, he believed that China had been cheated hmm. on free trade. So we have to distinguish that. So... You can be a free trader, but that doesn't mean that you allow cheating. Mm -hmm. If you look at the facts of how China came into the WTO with the help of the USA, although they didn't meet all the conditions mm -hmm. of the WTO, how the USA opened up its borders, 
they knew that China trade was asymmetric. Mm -hmm. China was exporting to the USA, but not opening its borders. Opening its own economy. Economy to the US goods. And stealing intellectual property. And stealing intellectual. So the US, in fact, looked the other way. And the key question is, why? No one ever questioned that. And the, the reason was that the USA made a political bargain with the Chinese, an implicit bargain. So essentially, they opened up all this. They knew very well what China was doing. So it was not that they had blinkers on. But what they were getting in return was hoping that by that, the China will emerge and be part of the USA, be friendly with the USA, be allied with the USA, vote along with the USA on sanctions Mm -hmm. to key countries like Iran, Mm -hmm. which it was able to obtain from China. So it was a quid pro quo. In the so, early days, of course, it was an anti-Soviet move when Nixon it, went to yeah. China. So uh, initially, and of course, it, 1978, Deng opened up the economy and yeah. the 80s. And uh, then began 80s that and way. 90s, yeah. it became like a quid pro quo. So politically, the USA was gaining having mm-hmm. China support mm-hmm. internationally. Mm-hmm. And internationally, they were helping China gain access. So, so, so when Trump came along, he did not understand the, the connection between the two. Mm-hmm. And then he just said, well, China has been cheating, so I'm going to punish the Chinese. So he believed in free trade, mm-hmm. he, but he believed in fair trade. Yeah. And that was his mantra. And you were in the Treasury at that time. And uh, what was the result of his sanctions? Did they work? Well, actually, I did a study. I was asked to do a study by Trump administration. And when they put in tariffs on China, even they put on tariffs on Europe, but let's just focus on the China, the 242 sanctions, they call them. So I looked at, you know, their, their, their tariffs that were put on Chinese imports, the USA. And that whole claim that the Trump administration had made that the Chinese would pay for the tariffs and the American consumer would be spared the, the, the higher prices was, in fact, not true, borne by a lot of studies that I surveyed at the time. So essentially, the Trumpian logic of raising, putting tariffs on and making the Chinese swallow it by lowering their prices actually backfired. The the trade deficit never improved under Trump. All right. So we talked about globalization in the U.S. We talked about how um, the mood has turned more protectionist. And it seems this is the new zeitgeist. After all, Britain has voted for Brexit. Xi Jinping is not as open as Deng Xiaoping. And uh, all the advanced economies seem to be battening down their hatchets. So um, does that mean that we will see what people argue, globalization or French-shoring, reshoring, nearshoring? Because it seems that the advanced industrial economies or the advanced economies want some industry back. They may not want to make socks or they may not want to make bottles, but they do want to make high-tech stuff. I think we, we need to discuss globalization a little bit more. So let's talk a little bit more about this whole globalization. Clearly, there is no formula or no metric that says, okay, this is optimal globalization. Mm-hmm. Okay. So no one knows what optimal globalization is. Because clearly, in an interdependent world, mm. vulnerabilities get exposed, especially when you have political problems. 
Yes. So, you know, the more globalized you become over time, the hope is that politically you're also unified. Hmm. But the Russia-Ukraine war has given has, us a food, fertilizer, exactly. and fuel crisis. Yeah, exactly. So what we need to do is to grow hmm. towards what is the optimal. So if, if it were a peaceful, normal world, you could increase globalization because, you know, it's like a unified world. Mm -hmm. But if you start having embargoes and sanctions, clearly that exposes vulnerability, as the Ukraine-Russian war has uh, told you. Number and the, one. And the embargoes, as you say, are much more severe than in the past. Exactly. So that's one. Mm -hmm. That can actually hurt yourself. Even if you were to embargo on like a rogue regime, mm -hmm. you're hurting yourself because you're dependent on it. Like Russia is a classic case where mm -hmm. most of energy is supplied by Russia to the Europeans. So now they are imposing sanctions on Russia and they realize how vulnerable they are. So when we talk about global, that's one part of the story. You know, like, so there's no optimal amount of globalization. It depends on the political evolution of the global system, mm. number one. Number two, it has exposed another, you know, sensitive, you know, area is how much of unemployment, how much of cheating can you bear? Like what I was talking about. Yeah. For your political advantage. Yeah. Yeah. And that has also brought it to the fore. Mm -hmm. Because similarly, when the Asian tigers were expanding mm -hmm. in the 90s, it was a very similar argument that the USA made. Open your economy, mm. and that way you'll bring in all these economies into democracy, human mm -hmm. rights, and so on. So there's been these you know, implicit bargains that the USA has tried to make with a lot of these you know, like the regimes that are not exemplary for their human rights. And, uh, and it has learned along the way. Mm -hmm. Thirdly is, how much labor can you displace? So if it were free and fair trade on both sides, yeah. then, you know, uh, it would be a different matter. Yeah. Now, given all those kind of, uh, you know, qualifications, free and fair trade, what is the extent of globalization, vulnerabilities that, you know, if you get into political wars and stuff, so all that, they, they, they come into a calculation looking uh, into the future. And finally, given what China has been able to accomplish, it has mostly grown on the back of the U.S. and the more advanced countries. Mm -hmm. You know, it has not grown because of its own consumer. Yeah, it's an export-oriented uh, export economy. Export -like so growth. essentially what China has been able to do, it has actually supplanted a lot of other countries that could, like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and it has supplanted that, and it has reached the limit of tolerance for the more advanced countries like the USA. And so I think the extent of globalization, as you may, I mean, the extent of trade, mm -hmm. uh, trade between countries, because of that big factor of China, and not China, and China not reciprocating. Mm -hmm. Similarly with the, the, the Asian Tigers. Mm -hmm. Similarly, well, Japan was a different story where it played the same game. Yes, but it you was know, a smaller player. It was a much smaller player. Yeah. Although it tried to play the same game, it yeah. was smaller. And the USA was able to talk, no, uh, negotiate with the Japanese. So given that, and Donnie Roderick and others have mentioned it, and you and I wrote a piece about it at the extent of industrialization. Exactly. So at the final analysis, 
if countries think like Vietnam, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, that they can grow by trade mm. and trading with, with the North, they're mistaken. They're mistaken. So, they're mistaken. So they should be thinking, and we talked about it. Yes, they should be thinking of increasing their productivity growth through industrialization, developing their domestic markets. Exactly. Understood. So that was a very clear answer as to both stagnation and to globalization. Let's move to the Russia-Ukraine war. Okay. You've had a ringside view in the administration. In fact, you predicted inflation when you were in the Biden administration, when the stimulus was cooking. Uh, and, and of course, now the war has come. Uh, the question on everyone's minds is, is a very simple one. And we have discussed it a wee bit. And the question is, is this war leading to an inflationary spiral or is it just a one-off shock? And this is a question that uh, Europeans in particular are nervous about. European industry, the Mittelstand, some people are saying has got middle kaput. Energy prices rose dramatically for them, and they are struggling. Uh, German industry is uh, not competitive as of now. Italian industry also is suffering because they relied on Russian gas as well. So what goes on from here because of this war? Okay, I think, you know, that's a question that's on everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. And when I was in the administration, when I was in Treasury, one of the, and, you know, like I was in charge of, sector around the world, mm. especially oil, natural gas prices, and how they were behaving and, out, and the outlook for them. And our listeners should know that you began as an energy economist. Well, I was a macroeconomist in the energy ah, uh, department, okay. <laughs> okay. but I did, you know, like through maybe yeah. osmosis, you picked, it up. picked up a lot of uh, <laughs> energy jargon. And uh, well, you know, like keep in mind that energy is, uh, is more... It's like a, a small market. So for an economist to analyze energy markets is just use your tools of supply and demand. Uh -huh. So it doesn't mean that you become an energy economist. Exactly. It's like, you know, you're talking about demand for housing yeah, yeah, yeah. or supply for housing. So when I was in the, I was in the energy department for eight years at the Energy Information Administration. And one of my job was to actually produce, you know, macroeconomic outlook, both for the U.S. and for the world. Uh -huh. And it was not only for like two or three years, mm -hmm. but it was actually for 25 years because the energy markets do not change in two years. They change over a period of time. Mm -hmm. Nuclear plants get built. It takes 10 years to mm -hmm. get a nuclear plant on and mm -hmm. so on. So, But anyway, backtrack to your question. My, I think in terms, first of all, as you pointed out, there are three major economies that constitute close to 75% of the world. Yeah. The U.S., China, the EU, European, and China. And the US. Yeah. So Russia is a very small player, mm -hmm. and Ukraine is even more. So. Mm -hmm. What makes Ukraine very, which I didn't realize, they're a big wheat exporter. Yeah, and, and sunflower and fertilizers. Yeah. And, and you know, so they're big exporters in particular niche areas. Yeah. And of course, Russia, although it's a major exporter to the, the to the Europeans, the, the U.S. Just to give you some numbers. They're exporting, they used before the war started, they were exporting 6 million barrels per day in 100 million barrels a day a world mm -hmm. to the world, 6 million barrels. Mm -hmm. So generally, in my studies, there's a rule of thumb that for every 1% decrease in the supply mm -hmm. of oil, oil prices can shoot up by 10%. 
I see. So if you take 6 million barrels, or, and you're talking about a 100 million barrel market, mm -hmm. which is 100%. Mm -hmm. So if you take 6 million barrels off the circuit, so you're talking about like about 60% increase in the oil prices. Mm -hmm. So if the oil prices had been like, say, $40, mm -hmm. they would have shot up to $80, which they did mm -hmm. initially. Mm -hmm. But then what happened? That Russian oil just didn't stay in the ground. It found market. It flowed. It seeped through to China and India. It flowed. <laughs> Who were the major consumers? Who uh, don't produce more of their own oil. They are energy starved. They are energy starved. And yeah. uh, basically, so it's not that uh, 6 million barrels uh, uh, didn't find their way into the market. They were there. And what has happened? Oil prices presently are like $80 a barrel, but not because of the Ukraine and Russian war. But because of They're Saudi big, Arabia and OPEC of, plus. Exactly. So that is what's driving the thing. So most of the initial shock of mm -hmm. the war and the sanctions for the whole world mm -hmm. have been absorbed. So it's a so, one-off as per you. Yeah. So it has been. So now it is adjusting mm -hmm. to the realities of the war, which means that oil has found different ways to get to the market, the world market. Mm. Russia has found ways across, around the international payment system. Yes, they, they were kicked out of SWIFT, but they didn't do too badly. They at haven't the end done of the badly. Yeah. Their balance of payments have not suffered. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are the long-lasting effects of the Russian-Ukraine war? There's going to be a lot of human toll to this. Mm. Let's you know, not minimize that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of economic damage, whatever had to happen has already happened. I see. Now, you talked about the human toll. So let's talk about economies that are in trouble. And there are a lot of them. Argentina has gone to the IMF. Pakistan has gone yet another time to the IMF. Bangladesh has gone to the IMF. Sri Lanka went through a terrible crisis and crowds broke into the president's palace. And one could go on. There's a real debt crisis on uh, in poor countries. Um, is that because of the Russia-Ukraine war or was the war just a needle that pricked a bubble? It partly, it goes back to the energy prices because mm -hmm. a lot of countries are mm -hmm. energy importers, like oil importers. Mm -hmm. Like Pakistan is a major importer. Sri Lanka oil. is. Sri Lanka Argentina is. is. Argentina is. Yeah. So, so, so as oil prices have gone from like $40 to $80, clearly they're feeling the crunch. Mm -hmm. Similarly, at the same time, because of COVID recession, Mm -hmm. demand for their products went down. Mm -hmm. So they've had trade difficulties mm -hmm. as the world economy has mm -hmm. uh, slowed down. So income went down and expenditure went up and they found themselves and, yeah, in, and, you in know, hot water. As trading, they had deficits yeah. that they had to finance. So clearly, you know, the IMF itself, when COVID happened, was uh, more lenient with these, you know, mm -hmm. uh, different programs structural adjustment programs that they had yes. in, under the enhanced facility. Yeah. So they were willing to, to be lenient. And, and of course, Sri Lanka and others, Argentina, they had these major problems. I, I would not put all of them in the same boat. Like Argentina, uh, like you mentioned, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh are different types of requests, you can say. Argentina is a habitual. Offender. It has had, because of its political situation, <laughs> yes. it has it 
historically, it's been one of those cases where they've had structural deficits and debt. Mm-hmm. And they've been repeated to the IMF. And they've, also and they've defaulted on their debt, they've too. They've also defaulted yeah. on that. Sri Lanka was also a very special case. It's a very small economy. Yeah. It doesn't really matter much to the world economy. Again, I'm not minimizing no, Sri Lanka. But, but, you know, I understand, again, but they're a small economy. And they're an externally vulnerable economy because they export tea exactly. and they yeah. export other commodities. Yeah. Bangladesh has gone to the IMF, but for a very valid reason. Because of COVID, it's mm-hmm. not that they had any structural problems. It's more that they, they've had a recession, mm-hmm. their, their trade has suffered, mm. but they've got all their, you know, like uh, marbles in a row, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They're actually doing much better than India and Pakistan in terms of economic growth or progress. Mm-hmm. So clearly, they, they've gone to the IMF, but it's, uh, if you look at their history, it's, it's a much more, I think, unusual circumstance rather than a usual thing like Pakistan. Now, Pakistan is a basket case. Uh, you know, sorry to 17th. say, I'm a Pakistani. <laughs> By and, origin. <laughs> and yeah, you know, like in 19th, I've even lost count how many times Pakistan has been able to do this. Yeah. And that is, in a way, another theme that I want to push forward. Uh, and I've done some papers on it, uh, especially U.S. aid to, to its major client states. Yeah, like Egypt, they, Pakistan, yeah. Thailand. Yeah, we talk about geopolitical rent. They, they, geopolitical they, they, rent. rent. So the USA over the years, yeah. starting in the fifties, has cultivated ties with these client states. Yes, that in a way has basically engendered, essentially, a, a very different mindset of rentiers, mm. who do not even have the energy resources, but they are rentier states of because of location. Mm-hmm. And Pakistan is a, very, a big example. Egypt mm-hmm. is another example. Turkey that, is another. Turkey, in a way, Turkey, exactly. Turkey was an example until Erdogan came along. Yes. And because he no longer is Playing uh, ball. Uh, dependent on the USA, he's more independent. Yeah. He can stand up. And the military has uh, basically lo- lost influence yeah. in his country. Where the, the, the military used to be the pro American yeah. client. So when uh, Erdogan got his, his own constituency, we stood up to the military. I think that, uh, and that's why they're suffering. You know, they have, yeah, they have tremendous well, development. I mean, the partly they are suffering also because he refuses to raise interest rates in the yeah, face of that's inflation. That's his all economics, that is kind of weird. <laughs> I don't understand Erdogan no, yeah. one bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some so, people tell me it's because he's a devout Muslim and he's against interest rates, but yeah, yeah. whatever so, the reason, they have so 160% his, inflation. Yeah, talking about voodoo economics, his economics <laughs> is on the same page. Voodoo economics. <laughs> to the so extreme. To the extreme. So Turkey is a different case compared to, you know, these run states. states. Yeah. Like, Rantier. you know, yeah, especially Egypt and Pakistan. Yeah. These are two classic cases. Mm-hmm. Other countries have graduated off the list, if you notice. Indonesia is out of that. Yeah, Indonesia is, is done much better over, much the, better over, because the, over the years. Last, year, uh, last few years. Getting World Bank handouts or the IMF. Mm-hmm. So they've actually distanced themselves from that. So I, I think it has to do with this whole mindset uh, of certain countries like Pakistan and Egypt, particularly. Who, and actually, Egypt receives uh, close to $2 billion every year mm-hmm. from the U.S. Mm-hmm. as part of that agreement mm-hmm. with the Israelis. Just, mm-hmm. you know, so 
So that, I think, has brought a different mindset. And then the role of remittances mm-hmm. that has brought in, that has left to a lot of waste, a lot of corruption, a lot of in things that are going on, uh, uh, reduced tax revenues. Mm-hmm. So, so the Pakistan and uh, Egypt are a continuing case of it. They need to reform. And I, and I don't think that that's going to happen very soon. So, I mean, Pakistan and Egypt are, of course, suffering, and so is a lot of Africa. And Africa has a debt crisis again. And, and of course, these countries were overextended in some ways, like Sri Lanka. Yes. Because if you're a Ghana, yeah. if you're a Kenya, then you rely on tourism, and that vanished. Yes. Uh, or you sell cocoa, or you sell tea, you, you sell commodity. And the same holds true for Latin American countries that are suffering too. Sure. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. do you do you see them rebounding in a year or two as the as the energy crisis subsides and and a new reality takes over? Well, you know, uh, again, uh, like I'm not a specialist on each one of these countries, yes. but I can talk in broad terms. Like Africa, for example, is basically a primarily a commodity yes. based country. So is Latin America, and so is mostly Latin yeah. America. So it's, they always go to boom bust. Commodities go up, yeah. you know. So they're like, you know, they haven't diversified that much into other areas. Uh, and that's the same with the course Latin America. And then you have these, you know, like countries that were promising, like Venezuela, mm. Brazil, Argentina. They've had political problems. Mm. The, the rise of populism, mm. socialism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again... Or uh, even far-right populism, both. Far-right so, so populism. I mean, Latin America almost swings... Uh, like, you know, Brazil, for example. Yeah, a, a deeply divided. January yeah. 8th, they had an attack, just exactly. like the U.S. did. Yeah. So, 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 so essentially, you know, so Latin America has a lot to do with political problems. I see. So rather than... And uh, I cannot predict how the, the political situation is going to shape out for those countries. Yeah, as far as the economics is concerned, uh, in broad terms, I, I, going back to our 75%, if we recover, yeah. at least the grounds will be set for other economies to recover. if they choose to really participate to, to recover. Based on the demand of this demand 75% their, of, this, uh, of this global economy. Global economy. So, so on the whole, you take an optimistic view. And on that note, we'll uh, bring this uh, episode to an end. Nasser Khilji, thank you very much for your time. It has been a great pleasure and a privilege to have you on FO Podcasts. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you.